Oh, my stars, Steve. My stars and stripes. We have some exciting news. Shall we tell them? We should reveal that Chinwag is hitting the road again and going on a West Coast tour. Yes, that's right. If you missed us in your fair city, truly, friends, don't fret, don't fear, don't have a panic attack. (laughs) Do not panic. We will be recording live Chinwags in May in Los Angeles, Portland, and Seattle. Yes, in L.A., we'll be at Dynasty Typewriter on May 14th. You can go to chinwagpod.fm slash Los Angeles for tickets. And on May 16th, we're going to be in Portland at Revolution Hall. For those tickets, go to chinwag.fm slash Portland. And we'll be at Town Hall, the great town hall in Seattle on May 17th. For tickets to that, go to chinwagpod.fm slash Seattle. You do not want to miss this. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be mighty, mighty. So get your tickets at chinwagpod.fm, and we will see you there. Come on out, waggers. Come out, waggers. Come out. (laughs) Come out of hiding. (laughs) I want to just go back for a second and talk about this thing with Bono, we couldn't get any. Here we go. In the really? Beginning. You're gonna no, you're I gonna double to, no, dip I, I, your back name to Bono. Yeah. No, I do, and I want to tell you why. Can that be the title why. of this episode? I, I Our wanna, episode I, is listen, called "Back on. to Bono with Sophia Here, Bush." Here's what I, here's Sophia. What I let, let me tell you. tell you a secret. They're they're all back to Bono. He had one Bono okay. experience. Here we go. We keep going back <laughs> to Bono. Listen, uh, as we talked beforehand, we, we, we want to kind of talk about things that pop into our heads. Now, this one is really crazy. Wait, so first my of wife, all, I want to call, I, I call that out, too, yeah. uh, <laughs> that we talked beforehand about talking about things that pop into our heads. Yeah, this, exactly. is, this is the difference between a, an improviser comedian and somebody who is governor, is that you think through the improvisation, improvisation. Where I'm just like, let's just talk about whatever comes to mind. And you're like, great. I'll call you 20 minutes I'll beforehand. Tell you. Listen, my wife called me today and she was listening to the BBC. And this is the, this is like crazy. So this was a report in 2016. Why is she, she heard she it too, today? Is she too good for NPR? Is that, is that what you're saying? She She's just likes the, she, she likes the, she likes the BBC. She's trying to get a my variety wife listens of news. To a, my wife listens to American radio. That's just, it's important in our household, American made. It's Terry Gross, and it's it's just people in the middle of America telling you like it is. You elitist Ohioans and your BBC radio. Yes. I just, well, af- after I tell you about this, you'll understand why we probably shouldn't <laughs> listen to the BBC. But she called me excited today, and I didn't know about this. But there is this exploring ship uh, that is going down, sponsored by the Natural Environmental Research Council. And it's a polar research ship trying to figure out why the ice in Antarctica is, is melting so fast. Uh, are we still and trying so, to figure that out? I think yeah, yeah. I, 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 okay, there's, hold, there's 14 hold on, shows on television telling I know. Me. Well, anyway, we they were down there exploring this, okay? They, I mean, they weren't just pontificating and shooting from the hip. They were putting a sub underneath but they wanted to name the, the, the major ship that was going to be on the surface of the water. So they asked the people in Britain to try to name the ship. And, and they came up with a name. Are you ready? Bodie McBoatface. Bodie Wait. McBoatface was the name they came up with that the people in England. No wonder why we revolted from them. Uh, and so, Governor. Listen, Governor, so, that, sto- that story is that that is that story is literally years old. I don't know why it was on the BBC today <laughs> here in 2022. You're and bringing like, me what? you're bringing me rerun news, Governor. This so is, you know we, we this be- you know this story. This this it's years old. This story, yes, it's a bo- this this is an example of the internet taking over and creating a comic name for this this boat. Exactly, but I mean, how so, old is what, well? It's how about, old is your radio? Listen, I thought, Jordan. You can pick on me if you want me to tell my wife what you're having to say about her habits, okay? I'm not criticizing your wife. I say this out of concern that I fear she has the type of radio that not only is antiquated, <laughs> but apparently it's getting news from years ago. It's like a, a dying star in the galaxy. You We're know what? Actually but that's just... what... Right. <laughs> but if you're getting news from years ago, it's probably a heck of a lot better than any of the news we get today. Maybe it's happy news. Let's go back five years and turn off today's news. And- Let's be clear. 
I, I want the type of radio that can play news from five years ago. I think that would be calming. It'd be, it'd be kind. You might still have a political career, and who knows? You could be president. I, I, who knows? We're, we're spitballing here. Yeah, exactly. All right. We, if, we, if we go on any longer, we're going to lose Sophia Bush. I've gotten to know her, fortunately, through World War Zero, her concern about the environment, the issue of pediatric mental health, where she has been so great in terms of using her influence to tell people about the challenge of our, of our young children. She's, she's, I, I can't believe all the things that she has going, but there's two things that, that always stood out with her to me, her high degree of intelligence and uh, what a nice person she is. She says she wants to out-nice all of us, which she'll have no trouble doing with us. But, Fair. Sophia, you know, you've had such a great career, and what I, I'd like you to just tell us, how the heck did this all start? I mean, how does somebody get to where you are? I mean, did this start, like, when you were, like, five or something? <laughs> oh, you're so sweet, Governor. And, you know... It might not be that hard for me to out-nice you guys teasing each other about your wives and your radios. I'm, I'm kidding, actually. That, that was hard for me to not laugh. I was like, oh, God, is my sound on? Are they going to hear me laughing at them? <laughs> Please, if, 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 if you're making any utterances that sound like they're complimentary towards us, turn the sound down. I, I, as a comedian, I, I die without constant approval. Okay, perfect. Yeah, you just need a laugh track. I get it. Yes. I, um, it's, it's funny to hear you you know, describe it that way, because I think, and I don't know if this is just a human condition or a condition of an artist in particular, but, you know, we all think we're sort of doing terribly at whatever it is we are. We look around and go, well, that person over there nailed it. And that person over there is really saving the world. And that person's career looks interesting. Uh, and perhaps worse now, because Everyone just posts their highlight reels to social media. So everyone really looks like they have it together. I love knowing no one knows what they're doing. That makes me feel better. But for me, no, I, I didn't start acting as a kid. I really wanted to be a surgeon. And then I got the acting bug because I did a play and realized that these were just my favorite books come to life. How old and, were you when you did the play? Uh, it was just when I was starting high school. I I had an arts requirement, which I thought I would cleverly get out of by signing up for volleyball. And the I remember the head of my school said, you chose this. You knew you had an arts requirement. And yeah, I, I wound up doing plays for the next four years and just really loved it. And I think it was right when I was applying to colleges that I made the decision to really do the shift. I loved biology and would stay, you know, after class was over through lunch to finish dissections with my favorite bio teacher, Mr. Hallman, if you're listening, you were the best. Thanks for being a great mentor. I guarantee you he's listening. No question. Ah, just the best teach. I had the best teachers in high school. My God, I was so lucky. But chemistry was not for me. I was like, this is not fun. Doctors have to do this. I don't I don't know, man. So that that was what I think pushed me in the other direction. I, it's funny, you, you, you mentioned an interest in becoming a surgeon and where you find yourself now. I found in, in my illustriously unsuccessful acting career that <laughs> I, I watched Indiana Jones and I was like, I'm going to be an archaeologist. And then I watched Jurassic Park and I'm like, I'm going to be a paleontologist. And eventually I was like, I think it's the idea of being the person who plays these people that is most appealing yeah. to me. Uh, yeah. it, took, it took me a while to figure that out. I also, I read that you were, you were looking at journalism potentially as a career. Yeah. And it feels like in some ways you've, that interest has been uh, reborn. Is that fair to say? Oh, for sure. I, I went to college and auditioned and got into this BFA program. And it was like, you know, a really big deal. And then I was in these rooms with all of these actors who just wanted to talk about the craft. And I was like, I got to get out of here. This is making me feel like a crazy person. I, I love performing. I love story. But, but what are we doing here? Whose stories are we telling? And I realized journalism for me is the root of everything because a really good story is born because you observe people. And a really good story happens because something happens to someone somewhere. I mean, think about the Aaron Brockovich story and what Julia Roberts did with that with a group of filmmakers. Th those were real people's lives. And I got really turned off by the theater department. And I, I leaned into journalism really hard. I became a student at Annenberg at USC. 
And interestingly, when, when my entire life revolved around writing about other people's lives, I started booking all of these auditions that I was going on. I had so much to say. And I think it's why I love television shows like my new show, Good Sam, because this is about a real environment and and we glean from real life. And it feels like such a privilege, especially after the last couple of years to, you know, play a healthcare worker and just to kind of big up the people who, I don't know, are actually saving lives. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. It, it sounds as if what you described, which was something I felt as well at times, that the the theatrical world or even the acting world, which I wholeheartedly love, but can be somewhat navel-gazy. Have you found that has shifted as, as the world has, by some people's perspective, exploded, that a desire to tell more authentic people's stories has has made some actors seek that out as opposed to seeking out some sort of personal validation? They're more so interested in the external storytelling side of it all? Yeah, I mean, I don't get personal validation from any of it. Like, I, I don't allow that stuff in, you know, none of it feels um, tangible to me. Being able to represent something feels tangible. That's what feels powerful. That's, I mean, that's why I know you guys, you know, understanding that I have a platform and luckily having, you know, very close to a full journalism degree before becoming a college dropout to go to a TV show um, about teen angst, uh, I... I've worked in politics for so long because I understand what's going on thanks to the schooling that I pursued. And to to use my ability to tell story and also come at it from the perspective of a journalist has enabled me to be a political activist. It's enabled me to stand up and use my voice for other people. That's where I find my purpose what I will say is over the course of my, you know, now nearly 20-year career, most of the actors who are really into navel-gazing don't last that long. Everyone's kind of like, oh, man, that guy's an asshole. And, like, they they work themselves out of the system. People have to care about the stories that they're telling enough to last in a business like this. It, it, it sounds to a degree that you kind of have used this platform that you have, your celebrity, to just do bigger things. You know, it's like I used to be pals with Bono, and he I met him back in, uh, I guess, about 98 or 99, and he wanted to do debt relief for Africa. And I'm like, why are you doing this? And he says, look, man, I have a platform, and, and I want to use it. Of course, if you think about some of his songs, like, you know, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, that's, that's a yeah. deep, that has deep meaning. And I assume that when it comes to the parts that you want to play, you're looking not just, you're looking for meaning in those parts as to how you project something, but you can also use the fact that you're popular to be able to take on causes and have a platform where people will listen. Is that, it's kind of a double thing, right? Yeah, for me, the platform feels like a privilege. And look, we all have individual desires and goals and dreams and fears, right? We all still have that lizard brain in our DNA that tells us that disaster is just around the corner and, you know, we better hoard our acorns like the squirrels in the backyard are literally doing right now. I wish I could turn my computer around and you guys could see the nature show mayhem happening in my tree. Um, but it's like we, we all have that animalistic instinct but I think what enables us as humans to to search for something deeper is not only our developed language, but it's it's our sense of community. I know what I love as an individual, but but when I have the opportunity to gain, when I have the opportunity to speak, to represent, it's it's not for me, it's for we. Mm -hmm. Anytime I get an opportunity, I figure out how can I include my friends in this? Anytime I'm going to go somewhere and have, you know, a microphone in front of my face, I think, who can I speak up for? Uh, whose ally can I be today? I I'm not interested otherwise, you know. I yeah, I'm fun. And, like, I cook a great dinner if you ever want to come over when it's safe to do so. But, like, I'm not interesting enough. I don't think anyone is interesting enough to just command a microphone to talk about themselves all day. After five minutes, I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it. What? <laughs> all right. What else do you, what else do you have? What do you care about? Who do you love? What do you believe in? You know, I, I, I don't know how else to do it. 
And it might be the deep cultural like guilt and self-deprecation that comes from being raised in a family that is both Catholic and Jewish. So you can imagine like the levels of anxiety. I don't know what it is, but I I can't function any other way than then any time I get to walk into a room, I think, okay, who do I carry with me? Whether it's physically or or in spirit, who comes through this door with me? That makes life so much more enjoyable than just, I did this, and then I did this, and then did you see that I did that? It's like, that's a Jennifer Coolidge character I want to watch in a movie. It's not like a person I actually want to hang out with, you know, for more than 90 minutes. Now, uh, when I was hanging out with uh, Bono and U2, it was early 90s, <laughs> Octon Baby, we all, have, we all have our Bono stories. We're all friends. Oh, yeah. We're, we're all have our connections. But I, yeah, I went I, to a U2 concert once. Does that count? Yeah. We're, we've all, we're all on the same level. I'll put a word for you guys. You know, I'll, all I'll, the same. But I would imagine Bono would have told me back then, because we are friends, <laughs> that uh, there is being an artist, which in many ways is uh, creating something that can be reflective to many, but then there's also being a political artist, and that in and of itself can create yeah. some some pushback from your fan base. I imagine, yeah. uh, especially in the acting world, and this seems like perhaps it's it's changing somewhat. I, I think, at least some comedians, it feels like authenticity. You're beginning to start to play roles, and and your audience knows what your point of view is and where you come from, and I think that's part of what the buy-in is. But I also think there's a risk for any kind of public figure, specifically an actor, to take on these causes. How difficult was that for you to navigate? And have you have you seen pushback from people who were with you early on who don't like the fact that they see this person they cared about in one setting become three-dimensional in another? For sure. You know, in the beginning, the advice was pick a cause, go to the gala, write a check, keep your mouth shut. That's never been interesting to me. That feels that feels like activism by tourism. I'm not I'm not engaged in that. I'm engaged with community organizers. I'm on like you know the secret signal groups figuring out how we're going to create a network that's going to put pressure on local leaders to do the right thing when people's lives are on the line. I I've never been one for a toe dip. So the people who told me that I had to pick a cause, write a check, go to a gala, keep my mouth shut, those people don't work for me anymore. They're not on my team. It has certainly intimidated people. It's made my family nervous. It's put a target on my back in certain cases, which isn't fun. You know, when you become a person who Breitbart likes to write about, knowing full well that they will send hundreds of thousands of violent death threats your way. Um, and then people who I believe in say, we know it's really hard and it feels like torture, but it means you're an effective messenger in the political sphere. I'm like, this is the this is the price tag um, of trying to encourage civic engagement and fight for voting rights. Like, it's not always pleasant. But anytime I think about that, I mean, he, he even came to mind the moment I said that. As soon as I uttered the words voting rights, I just thought, how did John Lewis do this? You know, I come into this world in, in the immense privilege of being born, you know, as a white woman. Yes, I, I have struggled with sexism and oppression and, and violence because of my gender, but I am very aware of where I sit on the privilege pyramid. And so many people who've come before us have done so much harder work. I think we owe it to them to stay in the game. I think we owe it to them to not give up the fight. And I think for me, what I realize is sometimes while the onslaught of negativity is very difficult, the positive has so far outweighed it. The people who have talked to me about conversations they've had with their families, episodes of my podcast that they've shared with people, even the work that the governor and I have done advocating for kids' mental health. I've had teachers re reach out to me and say, hey, I've gotten on our sleeves kits for my classrooms. Thank you so much. I didn't know this existed. And so if you can guide anyone toward a resource or help or feeling supported, I think it's worth it. Um, but yeah, it is weird when people say things to me like, shut up and act. I'm like, shut up and yeah. bank tell. Like, yeah. what? What do you do? What are you even <laughs> talking about? Participating in our democracy is literally our responsibility for the privilege of living in one. I didn't realize that because sometimes I entertain you, um, you don't want me to do that? Like, what weird blow-up doll assumptions do you hold about entertainers? Gross. Also, I went to journalism school. Back off, bro. Like, that's always how I feel when I read those sorts of things. And, and then I lean on the goodness we've been able to do for 
countless philanthropies, charities, what we've done with I Am a Voter, which is a nonpartisan civic engagement movement that I helped to found. Like, it's too good to do good to to bail because of the bullies, you know? You know, wow, that's uh, a really long-winded uh, answer. I'm so uh, sorry, uh, no, Jordan. No, no, I, I'm gonna, <laughs> no. I, I, you I, I and by you the way, that guy, he... He should shut up and bank tell. There's a giant think? line behind you. The people are there to do they're to get loans in, in, in a market like this. Shut up, bank Give tell. Give people for small God's business sake. loans, sir. Yeah. Thank you, sir. A- well, everybody, everybody, of course, no matter where they are, and I know you believe this, Sophia. So does Jordan. That you can change the world from where you are. I want to just yeah. go back for a second and talk about. This thing with Bono was pretty funny. We couldn't get any. Well, here we go. In the really? Beginning. You're going no, to double no, dip I, I, your back name to Bono? Yeah. No, I do. And I want to tell you. Can that be the title why. of this episode? Uh, I wanna, Our episode I, listen, is called Back on. to Bono with Sophia Bush. Here, here's what I, here's Sophia, what I let, tell let me you. tell you a secret. They're, they're all back to Bono. He had one Bono <laughs> okay. experience. Here we go. We keep going back <laughs> to Bono. So uh, here's, here's, here's the situation. He, he wanted to do debt relief for Africa because these countries couldn't pay. And he'd visited a lot of people, and somebody told him, because I was the chairman of the budget committee, he should come and talk to me about the money. Well, anyway, yeah. we got it done. Uh, we were able to pass mm-hmm. it and even create a coalition that involves some people who were really right-wing. And all that led to PETFAR, which was the initiative that, that yeah. Bush did. And think about yeah. how many people, how many human beings survived because Bono decided to use his platform mm-hmm. for good. And it was sort of funny Taken off on with Jordan's question, he asked me, he said one time, he says, why come we can't get more meetings up here in Capitol Hill? I said, well, look at you, Bono. You got wear a leather suit and Prada shoes and those goofy sunglasses that you wear. And a lot of these people don't want to be seen with you. And he said, well, you know, a lot of the members of my band, they don't want me to be seen with you. Uh, so, I mean, we, we, all, yeah. we, we got it. Now, but you, you've been involved in causes, though. They're not, they're not little things. I mean, mostly. If you take World War Zero. That's the environment. When you take on mm-hmm. our sleeves, that's pediatric mental health. When you take mm-hmm. gun control, that's a big issue in, Amer- in yeah. America today. To me, it's pretty hard for people to criticize you, and it doesn't matter if they do anyway, because you mentioned something, your Catholic and Jewish upbringing. To me, the more you talk, the more I become to understand that you feel that you've been given a gift and you need to use it to help other people because this is your opportunity to do something with your life. Is that, is that kind of where your, your heart comes from? Yeah, I think, I think to your point, uh, you know, when you talk about things being above the, the sort of 30,000 foot view is the place where things make the most sense to me because there are so many things that interpersonally feel emotional or complicated. You know, people can argue and often do from what they know or what they've been told to believe. And, and when you, when you back out and you really look at the sum total of all these parts, it can be helpful. That's why statistics, I think, can help us in conversations. You know, when you can say to someone who might have been raised in a community that is, for example, in, in our present moment, anti-vax, to say, listen, seven billion doses of this vaccine have been doled out around the world. And despite the former guy trying to take credit for a vaccine, which he doesn't know anything about, the research took 20 years to get here for us to have this moment with mRNA and it's incredible and it's saving lives. Like it, it can depersonalize a little bit. And for me, I think because I have uh, many would-be opposing views within my sort of central family force, I've always looked above. I, I tried to understand how we could have ever fought wars over faith, which to me, it's like, I don't particularly care what your sweater, like what color your sweater is. We're all wearing sweaters. <laughs> like, what are, how are we debating when we're all talking about a version of the same thing here? And... It led me to study a lot of Eastern philosophy through high school. It led me to spend my entire senior year in high school taking an Islamic studies course, another incredible teacher at the Westridge School for Girls, Sandy DeGrice. You changed my life. And I remember what it was like to spend a year diving into another faith, another calling. Mm -hmm. And then two years into college, watch what happened to Muslims around the world after 9-11. And I remember thinking, you know, when the Oklahoma City bombing happened, 
nobody was nobody was denouncing the radical faith of people who looked like us. Why do we do it with other people? Why are we lumping terrorists in with the faithful? It's a kind of cognitive dissonance. And I, I can understand, as I said, you know, we all have this individual thing. We have that like squirrel brain. I think we have deep in our DNA a fear of the other because we evolved living where the other was scary. And I, I hope for us that if we can zoom out more often, we can realize that being this far down the evolutionary chain of humanity, we're supposed to realize that the other is an illusion. We're all in this together. It's why I think about who I take into a room with me when I gain access to, you know, rarefied air to people like a, you know, a governor or a president of the United States. It's why I, I know what faith and tolerance gave to my family and I want to have faith and tolerance for everyone. And when I yes. see a lack of it, especially when I see a lack of it among people who claim to be faithful, I think, well, you're not, you're, you're not, not doing Amen. it. Right? Amen. You're not, you know, we, we should be kinder and more curious about each other. And I don't know. I, I think it's that Removal of the illusion of separateness, that feels like a calling to me. I would love for that to be kind of like our mission for each other, to to really see each other a little more clearly. And, you know, that might be, I'm sure there's some people rolling their eyes being like, that's such an LA thing to say. But uh, it, it feels, you know, like a bit of a purpose for me. Well, I, th I think you articulate that. Beautifully, I do think so. So often, otherness is is really more an excuse mm. that puts you at uh, separates you from having to to look within and stand for the things you actually care about, and it makes mm. the issues that you have it places them on somebody else and becomes that scapegoat. We'll be right back after this. Boca del Toro, Panama, a secluded seaside hideaway. Scott Makeda has no idea that his tropical haven is about to become his personal hell. He literally said, I have the power of Satan. A serial killer pretending to be a therapist. Holbert rents a room and that's where he set up his business as a fake shrink. Accusations of a gringo mafia. Gun running, drugs. A slaughtered family. And then he goes back and he plants another bullet. A killer on tape. Hey, man, I'm guilty. Everybody knows I'm a monster. The law of the jungle is simple. Survive. From Tree Fort Media and Village Roadshow Entertainment Group, this is Natural Selection, Scott versus Wild Bill. I'm your host, Candace DeLong. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to the show. As I hear you talk about this, I find it really fascinating because you, you clearly think through so much of um, the positions you take, the activism that you engage with. And I, I did, a, I did a, a docu-series where I spent a lot of time with, with activists. And I will say it was tough. It's really hard. I think I, I found a lot of the people that I spent time with, their hearts were in the right place, but it felt like they kept bumping up against the same wall and the system in and of itself had a hard time yeah. moving. And so like, whether it was functionally the way in which we gather people, how we use social media, where we show up or acts of civil disobedience, like how do you actually move the needle? And for many, it felt like the system was stacked against them. And I guess I almost want to open this up to you as well, the governor, as, as somebody who is in the government, talking to somebody who is an activist, like from a governor's perspective, what what does it take to move that needle? At least from like a legislative mm. point of view, like what are you, what are you perhaps hoping from, or what would you be swayed by an activist with a platform, but not with a a political position? Uh, like, what does move the needle from uh, a governor's point of view? You know, Jordan, for me, and look. Politics is so screwed up today because now it's all a thirst for power. And so it's like power into itself, which is no meaning. But in the best days, it's, it's persistence with a purpose that's legitimate. Look, we have a huge mental health problem in this country. And we can't seem to get people to understand how many lives could be saved and changed. So you just have to keep banging on it and find those people who 
are motivated by that issue. I mean, I do know how to do this, but here's the frustrating thing for people. Nothing happens quickly. If you go in the gym and you begin, you want to get stronger, you know, you got to keep going. It doesn't happen the first time you go in the gym. And there's a lot of people who are activists who they want it all to happen yesterday. And it just doesn't work that way. And that's a good thing in many ways, because what it does is it forces us to think through change. Change is what keeps us alive. It's what keeps us, you know, vibrant. It's what keeps us young be able to think differently, open your minds to, to different points of view. And for the activists, show respect to the decision maker, but not too much respect and be persistent. And if you do all those yeah. things, I mean, the one that drives me crazy right now are guns. I mean, to think that we can't have reasonable control of guns <clears throat> with people who have them, it drives me up the goddamn wall. And I, I spent a year as governor trying to pass some reasonable things. I, I got some things done, but I couldn't get the legislature. And I could lose my temper. I could yell at them. I could criticize them. I could make fun of them. But at the end, I wasn't going to move the ball forward that way. It has to be constant, and you have to have patience, and you've got to have an issue that really is just, yeah. fair, and, and then the system will work. But I'll tell you, it's really tough right now. Really tough. I was going to say, I, I mean, because I think that is a big ask, right? I guess I wonder, Sophia, in, in hearing that, is that frustrating to you? At what point do, do you have to approach it with understanding? At what point do you have to scream that the system is broken? And I think of John Lewis. I think of the Voting Rights Act. I literally have my son's room is in the, the back, and I have a John Lewis quote up on his wall to get into some good trouble. And, mm-hmm. and you look at what's happening right now with the Voting Rights Act. You look at what's uh, happening with race in America, and you're like, 50 years ago, we were marching for this, and it doesn't feel like the path we've tread has, has, has been far enough. And so yeah. as an activist, how, how do you hear that? I think here's the thing. I want to scream right now all the time. And I know the value, as the governor said, of taking a breath. And you have to be pragmatic. I know that. And I'm also exhausted. The fact that we passed, you know, a 700 and what was it, $746 billion defense budget, $28 billion more than the administration even asked for. And we're claiming that we don't have $3 trillion to invest in Build Back Better, to invest in schools, to to continue the child tax credit. It's laughable and it's ridiculous. But to the governor's point, this bloodthirst for power that now exists in the halls of Congress and the Senate, people don't run anymore because they want to serve people. They run because they want to get book deals and do reality shows. You know, you see this guy, and I feel like I'm allowed to talk shit about him. Pardon my French, but I'm so angry because I used to live in that state and I paid taxes there for a long time. This guy, Madison Cawthorn, has like made up a story like he's a video game hero to be a congressperson in North Carolina. And he's a liar and a repeat sexual assaulter. And nobody cares. It's the same thing that we dealt with with the former guy. It's like a reality star who's been broke forever, who used to have to get NBC to gas up his jet so he could fly it around with his name on it is pretending to be smart and and has bamboozled all these people into thinking he's some great, gentle president. It's like we've lost the plot. And so I hear the governor on the fact that the loudest voices really are often a small minority, but the PR machine that exists behind evil, because it exists for money, is outbalancing the scales and the fact that we're arguing about not even a new law, the reinstatement of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act to protect the most, what should be the most sanctimonious priority of our democracy, that we can't get that done, but Mitch McConnell can shove three Supreme Court justices down our throats. He'll nuke the filibuster to literally make the founding fathers roll over in their grave, but we can't nuke the filibuster to make sure people can vote or that kids don't go hungry. It's political to not want kids to starve. That's partisan now. What is happening in America? I don't understand this. And I I don't know what the answer is to turn the temperature down, but what I do know is that sanity 
and good fiscal plans and and assistance to Americans with finance. And by the way, all the money is ours. It's our taxpayer money. The idea that it's a handout is so laughable. It makes me want to smash my face into a wall. Sanity has to prove itself times 100. And insanity, you know, gets the cover of every front page news for n- while it sets fire to the country. This is not in balance anymore. It's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, the fact that Donald Trump calls people in my industry the elite when we literally live like a bunch of Democratic socialists, I'm like, yeah, I keep 20 percent of the money I make because I pay so many other people and I'm proud to do it. Nobody talks about that when they quote like actors salaries and whatever. And here's a guy who paid seven hundred dollars in taxes one time. And he's got a jet and a gold toilet in every bathroom in his penthouse apartment. And he's not elite like get out of here, bro. I can't. It's it's we're so far into being a banana republic. And now we've got a guy and I get it. Like everybody thinks Joe Biden's kind of like milk toast. I don't care. He's lovely, by the way. He's one of the most polite, charming people I've ever met. People say, well, I don't know if I want to have a beer with him. I do. I want to have a beer with Joe Biden. He's awesome. And for some reason, people think the guy's boring. He has done the most shocking and incredible economic recovery. And people are saying he's bad at his job. What upside down stranger things universe do we live in right now that we're even debating this stuff? Well, so, Sophia, let me let me just uh, let me just jump I'm in exhausted. for a second. Because yeah, I'm not I'm not talking about the, the some of these crazy people, okay, who have done and you oh, and I mentioned know you're one not. of them. But, but here's what but here's I'm what just I wanted, looking but, at the landscape, no, but you know I what I mean? Hear, but I want you to, to hear this. There are legitimate other sides to many of the points that you made. Mm-hmm. And the problem we have in the country today is nobody's listening to the other side. Jordan and I had a long conversation a couple of weeks ago. Mm. He had a point of view about some political stuff. He and I discussed it. He made points that, that have affected me. I hope I made some points that affected him. That's the way the system's supposed to work. Yeah. And what's happening today is people are so caught up. I mean, there are people on the right who think that the whole value system of the country is being snatched by the left. I mean, you've got to hear what they say, right. but you have to hear mm-hmm. them. And if all we do is get on our soapboxes, all of us, on our own individual soapboxes, but all we're doing is talking mm-hmm. and we're not hearing anybody else, because I'm, for the first time in my lifetime, I am worried about the future of our country. I'm worried mm-hmm. because there seems to be no agreement on truth. There doesn't seem to be any agreement on what America stands for. What are the values about mm-hmm. what we're all about? I've heard from, from my parents in the Depression. They were young. Neighbors shared with one another. In the war, yeah. World War II, people died for their country. There was a coming together, and now there's a cleaving apart. So the question yeah. is, and this is I don't have the answer, how do we pull people together to listen to one another and to respect one another? I may not agree with everything you say, Sophia, but on the other hand, boy, I really like you. And let's find some things that we can agree upon. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. I mean, that's the way it used to work. But it doesn't work like that anymore because the type of people that are going into politics, you're right, they're going in for the wrong reasons. They're going in to be warriors, not to be builders. And we've got to stop this because if we don't stop it, it's going to take it's it's going to unravel our precious country. Yes, but I, I want to know where those sensible people are. Because, Governor, I like debating policy with you. Yeah. I like hearing your perspective yeah. that is different from mine. I actually think it's incredibly important. we got to find them. we got to search them as, out. Yeah, just as so many women have talked about the fact, uh, and actually one of my favorite quotes about this comes from, ironically, a Catholic nun, Sister Joan. She's in her 90s. And she famously talks about how part of the reason that that government doesn't work to serve the people is because people, men, people with 50% of the information are making 100% of the decisions. Men have largely been in control of the government forever. And yes, the numbers are changing and the demographics are changing and you have young women winning elected office. Great. But I think that's really important. You have 50% of the information I have 50% of the information. If we got 100% of the information in a bucket, we'd make a much better decision. 
And yes. I guess yes. what what we can't even agree is... what goes in the bucket. We can't even agree what goes in there because there's exactly. no agreement. You know, let me tell you one uh, thing, and... Sophia. This is it's a really interesting story. I was in New York with some walking down the sidewalk with some women, and this is after I left Congress. And Nancy Pelosi came out of a restaurant and she saw me. Now Nancy and I didn't agree on a lot of things, and you know what? She hugged me and she said, "John, we really miss you." And the reason was, is that she and I could figure out what to put in the bucket. Right now, they can't figure out what goes in, what goes out. Is there a hole in the bucket? We got to do this. Jordan's got to do it when he's out there. You got to, you are doing it. We have to calmly assert the truth. Yes. But it frightens me to see how how far to the margins things are going. I agree with someone, you. You know, when someone like Adam Kinzinger or Liz Cheney when these people get censured for simply speaking up for the truth, this this is this is crazy. To get back to your sort of earlier question, Jordan, that's what makes me feel impatient. I'm like, I don't want to be patient with insurrectionists. And I don't want to be patient with people who are, you know, trying to get kids killed in schools with automatic weapons. I don't I don't want to have this conversation. But I know, like you said, Governor, we won't get anywhere unless we really talk to each other. And I think the reason that I feel a bit uh, rudderless in this moment, no less convicted, but a bit unsure about where to go is, I don't know how to start to tackle a problem that feels this unbalanced and Sophia, let me tell you about guns. And Jordan, I I just got to say this before, because this is important. Do you know why we don't have gun control? Because Mm -hmm. the gun control advocates never show up. In other words, you remember the Ohio legislature, okay, the pro-gun people are calling all these legislators. Mm -hmm. If I were able to get 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 people on the grounds of the statehouse, those members of the legislature who were hiding, I I could have gotten through what I wanted. And the media itself focuses on gun violence for two days, and then they never talk about it anymore. Yep. In other words, well, you I, want to get it done, the pressure has to be applied. It has to be applied on the environment. It has to be applied for children. It has to, but it just but doesn't I, seem to. That's that's what I, I, I think. Have and seen. I, I would in the gun. I I do think the NRA. You could say a lot of things, but one thing they're good at is organizing, and the people yep. fall in line and they show up. You're not wrong, yep. and I think on a local level, they're there at the state legislature. They're packing the seats, but I do think there are groups like Every Town Moms Demand Action mm-hmm. who do get people out, who do care, and I think it goes back to Jordan. Sophia's they point, don't show like, up. I don't, I'm telling I, you. I think I was who, trying to who, pass who all would this listen. Stuff. The question is, who would listen? Oh no, I do no, think, the numbers, the numbers. If the, I, if the, I, I'm telling I you, there, there's. I know this. Gentlemen, I can I, this. but gentlemen, can I, can I, yes. uh, you know, I don't mean to interrupt you both, but here's what I'm going to say. You can't go ahead. <laughs> People, we do show up a lot. We don't get the same coverage to your point. This is also a media framing problem. But what I will say is everyone saw how effective it was when people were showing up all through the 50s, 60s, 70s yes. and marches. And you yes. know what happened? Work hours got longer. Corporate profits tripled and quadrupled. Minimum wage never went up. People are still making $7.25 an hour. People in America cannot afford to show up, Governor. They can't afford to take a day off of work to go and speak. They, they can't do it. And I think that's by design. I but have Sophia, to be we have, we, have, we have 11 and a half million people in Ohio. And you're yep. telling me that we couldn't for a week have had 10,000 people gather on the state house grounds. And by the way, yep. all the protests in the 50s and 60s did change the laws. Things yeah, have dramatically improved. But that's what they I'm have. saying is, is yeah. to Jordan's point, the system understands that the power of the populace is a threat. And the system has been doing its damnedest to disempower and disenfranchise people. People are suffering. And and while, yes, I'm the person who's always out there marching, I'm always doing things. I marched the entire summer of George Floyd. I have flown to D.C. for marches like I'm out there on the ground all the time. A lot of people don't feel like they can get out there and they're exhausted. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a lot that needs to be tweaked. It's like in my brain, I see it. The, the ship is leaning way too far to the side and it's about to capsize and we got to get the mast pointing at the sky again. And so, yes, I do absolutely agree with you, 
I'm constantly the person who says, let's hit the streets. And I want us to hit the streets all the time. But I have a lot of very human grace for the reason that people struggle to show up because every time people turn on the news, there's something horrible happening. And I do feel that a lot of people who don't do this day in and day out like the three of us do because we are obsessed with trying to crack the progress issue, a lot of people are working and feeding their families and they don't even know what the thing is that they should hit the capital steps about because it feels like a dumpster fire every day. And I feel for those people. And I would flip it back on us and say, what do we need to do with our media outreach to do better, to cut through the white noise and the BS and the nonsense chatter of lunatics on the internet? What are we going to do? How do we invite people in better ways so that they know when to show up? Jordan, governor. Uh, Wait, I have to do something? Sophia, I don't like where you're going. I was with you for most of it. But then when there's personal accountability, that's where I get, that's where I get nervous. I, I hear you. I mean, I think this is, honestly, it's inspiring to hear the passion in this conversation. But it's also, it's what's so frustrating is it does feel like so often you're, you're knocking your head against a wall and it won't move. And I think, Sophia, your, your point, I will say, I, I don't hear it nearly enough, is like the privilege of having the time to show up. Um, and I, but I also hear you, Governor. I, th- I think you are right about this idea of we need to be able to sit down and have rational conversations where we can hear the other side. Because even when it comes to something like guns, there are two sides to that, and you should hear both of them. I think my question becomes it, it more often than not seems like one side is willing to make that concession and the other side stays yeah, strong. Right. And so I yeah. do think this idea of when can we sit down and have rational conversation is a goal. My question is, is it also a tactic to get to that goal. And that I don't know. All right. Look, we have been so heavy on all this stuff and it's been good, but I have to ask you this question, Sophia. Tell us about this guy that you're going to (laughs) marry. I mean, how does this work in your world? Huh? And who is this guy and how did it happen? Oh, you're so sweet. And, and I hope it hasn't been heavy. I, For me, there's something, and and it it might be a bit medical. To me, it's like you got to clean out a wound so you can really make, make, you know, the flesh healthy and then stitch it back together and let it heal. And and you're two people whose brains, I'm like, how do we clean it out? What do we do? I want to get into the, you know, the solution of it. I want to, I want to be honest enough. I want to love this country and each other honestly enough and deeply enough to be honest about what we're not doing right so that we can get there, so that we can be this sort of inspiring beacon, so that we can be the place that my grandparents immigrated to and my dad immigrated to because of what it meant. So I'm just going to say that like a willingness for me at least to get heavy is rooted in such love and like almost romantic nostalgia. Um, That just feels important. And then, yeah, the actual romance um, in my life. <laughs> no, it, you know, it's funny. It, it's a weird universe to, and I've always been so creeped out by like someone's agent calling about a date or I'm just, I've, I've Is really, that how it works? You got to have an agent. Okay. Yeah, you I've, can't had, just... like, I've had people, you know, invite me to things through an agent and I'm like, this is gross. I don't know what this is, but I don't like it. Um, and I also just, you know. I'm an anxious person with trust issues. And so I'm I'm not really one to just take a gamble. But ironically enough, I I met my soon-to-be husband 10 years ago uh, on a big trip with a group of friends. And we had a really nerdy chat about the books we were reading. And it was a it was a great time. And I thought, like, oh yeah, we're 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 gonna be friends. Like there's a group of people on this trip who I knew and a group who I didn't. Where'd you and go? I'm so excited. Where did you go? Where was the trip? Uh it was a group of us went down to a actually a little eco lodge in Nicaragua. And it was such an amazing, amazing time. Found out we had so many other friends in common, but we were just friends. We never went on a date. It was it was never that kind of a thing. And then uh, just after my show, just after Good Sam got put on pause because of the first COVID shutdown, we all left Toronto. We came home and Grant had shared something about attempting to 
get a supply chain open from the Midwest. A warehouse had millions of N95s and no way to get them to New York. And I texted him immediately and said, this is so crazy that you just shared that. Somebody reached out to me yesterday um, about another supply chain thing, and and this might help. And he was working with a whole team of folks in the medical world, um, putting together basically this giant shared dock that people could use for resources. And lots of people were reaching out to me because uh, of, you know, my platform and the stuff I'd been sharing about how to assist first responders in New York. And that kind of kicked off us chatting again. And everyone in our lives is like, oh, my God, of course, you two started dating because you were doing community service. Uh, go <laughs> away. Just go away. <laughs> uh, but it, you know, it feels it feels like a lovely, a lovely way to quickly see where someone's priorities are. I'll say that. And when did he ask you to get married? Now, come on. We want to hear a little of this. Come on. You can be. Uh, come on. We, that's so sweet. We, um, we got engaged this summer. We were actually in Italy, uh, not too far from where my family is from. And it was very, very sweet and not altogether unexpected. You know, we'd obviously been talking about our lives and goals and, and what all of that, you know, would look like. But. I was still very surprised, um, and it was it was great. Well, Sophia, if you're looking for an officiant, uh, the governor has a great connection with his best buddy, who's the lead singer of U2, and I'm, I'm sure <laughs> hey. he'd, he'd be great. I wonder if he'd bust out that leather suit for us again. What do you think? <laughs> it's a good look. I like that. I like that the governor's critical of his glasses, like the one iconic thing about <laughs> Bado. He's like, I'd lose the glasses, and Elvis He's Presley, like, you stop and shaking those, those weird hips. Glasses. Uh, this was uh, wonderful, Sophia. Thank you for for sharing your thoughts and insights. Will you come back and, and talk to us again? I'd love to. I would really love to. And Jordan, anytime you need like you know a runner out, I don't want to say the R word. I don't want to say rally um, at a gathering where there's a gala. A political a, a, a gala <laughs> gathering where there's political humor to be found. I, I must say that's. I would love to do more of that. So thank you for that. Oh, you are too kind. You are welcome to bring sanity and thought to any of the galas that I go to, please. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. Watch Sophia on the new CBS drama, Good Sam. It's airing Wednesdays on CBS, available on Paramount+. Plus. Also, we didn't even have a chance to get into it, but you can listen to her weekly podcast, Work in Progress and Drama Queens, wherever, wherever you get those podcasts. Uh, Sophia, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Kasich and Klepper is a production of Treefort Media, hosted and executive produced by John Kasich and Jordan Klepper. Treefort Media's executive producers are Kelly Garner, Lisa Ammerman, and Matthew Kugler. Line producer is Oscar Guido. Audio direction by Tom Monahan, head of audio for Treefort. With production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Talent booking by Blythe Asher. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motel, and Anastasia Ibrahim. This podcast is powered by Acast.